following is a recording of a sermon given at All Saints Lutheran Church in Ottawa, Canada. For additional messages and more information, visit allsaintslutheran.ca. So for today's reading, it has been taken from Book of Ephesians, second chapter, from verses 1 to 10, and Book of John, 15th chapter, from verses 1 to 10. So it is written like this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we shall, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. John 15, 1-10 I am the true wine, and my Father is the wine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away, and every branch that does not bear fruit he prunes, that it may bear fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As a branch cannot be a fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If, any, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you may bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciple. As the Father has loved me, so, ha so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandment and abide in his love. Word of the God. This morning I'm finishing up, or perhaps pausing, we'll see, my series which I've called Following Jesus. Pause or stop until after the Advent Christmas season. For those who might be unfamiliar with Advent, it's customary to anticipate Jesus' birth at, at 
at Christmas time the four weeks prior. Advent means coming, referring to the coming of the Son of God at his, at his birth. So over the four next weeks, four next weeks, next four weeks, I am planning a special gospel Advent series. I'm calling the, the messages Gospel Hope, Gospel Peace, Gospel Joy, and Gospel Love. Sounds like a record album collection. But my hope is that through this, our understanding of the gospel of Jesus will be broadened and deepened. So back to today. This is the fifth and final-ish installment of my Following Jesus series. To review, we began with what I called the call. We're called to be followers of Jesus, not fans. Faith is active, not passive. Everyone is a follower of someone or something. We are called to follow Jesus. Then, in walking with God, we looked at how a genuine faith in God is not a magical superstition, a state of being, or a formula, but a dynamic relationship with him. It's not something that is to be a part of our lives. It's to be our life in every way. Then in The Cost, I shared how to to know Jesus is more than a personal spiritual experience. It is that, but that's just the beginning of our being part of God's rule, his kingdom, beginning now and lasting forever. To be part of his kingdom means giving up everything for him. But when we grasp its benefits, we know it's way worth it. Last week, which I entitled In His Steps, we saw that being part of God's kingdom is like being foreigners in a strange land. While we should do our best to get along with others, especially the authorities, ultimately we serve the heavenly king, which can put us at odds with earthly authorities. This tension can be painful, but again, it's worth it. After all, what's the alternative? If you've missed these or Uh, interested in seeing or hearing them again, they're available on our website and our YouTube channel. Today, I want to look at the fruit or the outcome of following Jesus. I've entitled today's message, God's Poetry, and you'll see why, I hope. Back in May, I taught on on John 15, 1 through 10, which was just read for us. In that passage, Jesus uses a picture of a vine and branches to illustrate how a true relationship with God necessarily results in a productive life. This morning, we will look at the last three verses of the Ephesian passage that was just read, which expresses a similar idea, but in a different way. So let's look again at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Paul writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. I want to talk about these good works, but before I do, we need to deal with some common misunderstandings. First, there's what I'm calling 
the nervousness of doing. In some Protestant circles, there's a concern over associating works with anything to do with faith. That's actually a good concern. But as Christianity developed through the centuries, and we're going way back in the centuries that followed, there emerged the idea that while being a Christian secured your place in heaven for eternity, our behavior had a serious effect on how long it might take to get there after we die. It was in this place called purgatory where you were to work out your failures in this life. It's interesting, um, when you think of church history for 2,000 years, the concept of purgatory and having to work your way out of that, if, you, if I had a, a, a round chart called a pie chart, that would be a lot of church history. And when you realize how much of those people who call themselves Christians still believe in that sort of thing, that's a lot of Christians over a lot of time who have believed in this in-between place called purgatory, which is not a biblical concept. So as this unbiblical concept developed, so did the idea uh, of how you might be able to decrease your and other people's time in purgatory. Remember, that might be something we've never really thought about, but it has been part of the Christian psyche for a large part of, of church history. The church's official granting of this decreased time in purgatory was called an indulgence. As I'm sharing this, some of you are thinking, what in the world does it have to do with us? Well, hold on, you'll see. Not only did this idea become prevalent, it had also become widely abused by the church to the point that it would make money off of people's religious activities. So, the church, we now call it the Roman Catholic Church, but there was no Roman Catholic Church before the Reformation. It was simply the church. Um, believed that there were ways to it was work yourself out of the... The whole purgatory thing had you working out some sins that you hadn't dealt with in, in your life on earth. And, and, but there were things that you could do to reduce your time in purgatory. And so the church came up with an official way of doing this called indulgences. And, and not only could you do things that would reduce your own time there, you could purchase these indulgences on behalf of your dead loved ones to get them out of purgatory quicker. And that was a really big thing. And it was one of the main things that caused Martin Luther to nail his 95 theses or statements to the door of the Wittenberg Church on October the 31st, 1517. And I mentioned this uh, on October 31st a few weeks ago. And I mentioned it would be interesting to actually read them because there's a lot of people that have this image of what Luther did. He nailed this, this to, to the door of the Wittenberg Church. He actually, it, was, it served as a bulletin board. Not, it, was, it was not an act of protest. It was an invitation for conversation. He was, Luther was an academic, a professor, and he was concerned about these things and wanted to see these things discussed. Now, as it turned out, even trying to discuss those things resulted in a complete transformation of the world. 
It's funny that way. You know, that's one of the reasons why some people don't want certain subjects brought up because of the ripple effect of even just asking certain questions. Hear that, Mr. Emperor, who might not, you know, I don't, you're going to be cold without clothes on, Mr. Emperor. No, 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 you're not supposed to say anything. Saying things often causes trouble. That's what happened to Luther, and thank God that he did it. But most people don't know that 41 out of the 95 theses had to do with indulgences. Didn't that all have to do with the word of God and, and faith? And that, it might be in there somewhere, but he was really, really concerned about how the church was making money off of, off of the, the, the backs of poor Christians. So it was Luther and others who helped restore a biblical understanding of how right relationship with God is established and maintained. They rightly derive this understanding from verses such as Ephesians 2, 8, 8 and 9, which I'll read again. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Because of what Jesus did by dying on the cross and rising from the dead, if we turn from our sin, our self-driven, wayward ways, and put our trust in him, which is what faith is, we're forgiven and become God's children. If you think about it, it could sound too good to be true. But actually, it's the greatest good, and it is true, that God has actually went out of his way to pay our debt so that we could be restored to him. Now, we saw in our series on 1 John that being a child of God doesn't mean that we will never sin again. But when we do, and honestly admit, that's what confession is, honestly admit our sin to the Lord, he forgives us. He forgives us. Now, that's not something to abuse. God sees through our hypocrisy. But 1 John, which is so black and white that there is a way for believers to live. And if we are not living like believers, we may not really be Christians. No matter what we, what we do or what church we go to or whatever. Hypocrisy is a real thing that the church does need to take seriously. As I've mentioned before, it's not a church problem, it's a people problem. Human beings tend to wear masks. Oh, don't get confused. Those other kinds of masks that people always used to wear to church. But they also wear it to work. And they wear them, oh boy, do they wear them on social media. Putting that, that, that other self forward that people are jealous of, which is just so ridiculous because it's all fake. Fake, 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 fake. And one of the things about being a child of God is we take our masks off and we become real before him because he sees us anyway. And what a wonderful thing that knowing we all know, unless we're in complete denial, that we fail. That's why we have our, a, a formal confession time every week and we say the things that we say 
If you don't think they're true, I would strongly encourage you not to, not to join in. But we say them because we believe this is generally true. And week by week, day by day, throughout a day, we need to keep short accounts with God, knowing that he, he's already forgiven us, but we maintain that relationship through an open and honest conversation with God. We don't have to work our way to somehow, to, you know, to, you know, to whip ourselves or, you know, I did something bad, so I'm going to read some extra chapters of the Bible. That's indulgence thinking that Luther fought against. And we need to be careful not to fall into that trap, because that trap is always waiting for us, thinking that somehow we can twist God's arm and put him in our debt and get him to respond to our behavior to get him to do what we want. Tried to cover some of that some weeks ago. I've referred to it already this morning. This superstitious kind of relationship to God where we relate to him that if we find the right buttons to push, then he's going to respond in a way that we want him to. No. The only thing that works, it's it's simple, but it's not a formula. Humbling ourselves before him with as much honesty that we can muster. Lord, have mercy on us. Forgive me for my sin. So Luther and others were right to confront the church's error with regard to religious works and indulgences. But like a lot of solutions, it brought with it a new problem. Something like uh, an allergic reaction to works. Luther rightly so, was super passionate about the free gift of salvation in Jesus that we receive by faith alone, that he and others, in an attempt to help people not to fall into a salvation by works trap, tended to diminish the importance of living godly lives. Luther's teaching on salvation by faith alone somehow created the impression that the religious Jewish people at the time of Jesus were trying to work their way to heaven on the merits of their good deeds. But that was never the case. The works emphasis in the Jewish world that Paul critiques in his letters had more to do with particular expressions of biblical religion and associated traditions that indicated that one had truly and fully embraced the covenant that God made with his people his people Israel at Mount Sinai. These would include such things as circumcision, the keeping of the Sabbath, the food laws, and so on. The doing of these things demonstrated that you were really in with God. And this is something else I've, I've mentioned before. We do it today, too. There's, you know, we always, you know, we come to church, we volunteer, we read the right Bible, we say the right confession. These are not... This has nothing to do with morality, doing good things. These are religious works. But it's very easy to think that we go to the right church or we don't go to the wrong church. And these are somehow these kind of symbols. They're actually like badges that prove to us and others that we really are in right, right relationship with God. But it doesn't work that way. So a Jewish person could boast about our history. We're the people of the book. 
God gave us circumcision. God gave us the Sabbath. And these are signs of his favor. In some ways, they actually are, but they don't guarantee acceptance from God. Paul teaches in Romans and Galatians very strongly and alludes to it here in Ephesians that right standing with God has always been all the way through the whole Bible through faith, trusting in God. Where am I here? So when Paul critiques works, it's the doing of those things, those badges um, that were believed that they demonstrated that a person was really in with God. That's why when non-Jews began to believe in Jesus as the Messiah, which we read about in the New Testament, there were those who insisted that they also had to do the other things. This is what Paul fights against in the New Testament. He argues that ever since Abraham, people have been forgiven and accepted by faith, as I said, by trusting in God and his word. What we do, our works, how we live, is to be the outcome of that trust. But Paul and the other writers of the New Testament never undermined the importance of true believers needing to live godly lives. Jesus himself in John 15 makes it clear that the failure to bear good fruit jeopardizes one's relationship with God. To take that seriously isn't a matter of working harder at religious observances, but rather to humble our hearts before God, to trust him and obey him. So let's look again at what Paul says in Ephesians, this time including verse 10. And I'll comment on verse 10 in a moment. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are God's workmanship. The Greek word is poema. It only appears two times in the New Testament. It's derived from a more common word, which is, uh, which are, oh, there it is, <laughs> poeo, which simply means to make. 500 times. The poema only appears twice. Poema refers to that which is made. It's more common in the early Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. But the other time it's used in the New Testament is Romans 1 verse 20, where we read, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. It's the creation, that which has been made. That's poema. The creation is God's poema. And you, the children of God, if you have put your faith in the Lord Jesus, you are God's poema. Poema is where we get the English word poem. We are God's poem. His creative masterpiece. 
That's what we are. By the power of God, through faith in Jesus, he has made us a new creation. Paul alludes to this. We continue in verse 10. Created, so we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Now, only God creates. Humans make things out of other things. We call it creativity, and, and that's fair. But only God creates out of nothing. And that's what he did when he spoke the universe into being. And that's what he did when he saved us. We are his creation. We are his recreation. He took stuff that was dead and he brought it back to life. We are his masterpiece. We are his poem created in Christ Jesus for good works. There's the good works thing. Some inoculations are good and some inoculations are bad. And if you want to take the, and use that quote, you may. Just be careful where you use it. You do not want to be inoculated against good works. But that's exactly what has happened to many parts of the church because of what I was sharing, that this idea of even encouraging people to do good works, well, that somehow gets in the way of salvation. It gets in the way of salvation when it gets in the way of salvation. We think it's how good we are is what gets us to God. We're wrong. If we think by doing better, we could get rid of sin in our lives. Well, we stop sinning and do what's good. That's really, really helpful, and we should do that. Paul talks about putting to death the deeds of the flesh and putting on God's righteousness. That's something that we do. It's not just something that happens. It's not magic. The miracle is that God took dead stuff and remade us in the likeness of his glory that we could actually live righteous lives. So we were created in the Messiah for good works. It's like we've been made from scratch again. This is God restoring what I call the creation mandate when he first called Adam and Eve to be stewards, caretakers, supervisors of the creation. It is the believer who's restored to that place to look after God's creation in every way. And the various ways that we do that are the good works that God has called us to. We've been remade by God in Jesus to be the people we were always meant to be. And he actually says we were creating Christ Jesus for good works with which God prepared beforehand. Now, some people have taught that this idea that God prepared these good works for us beforehand is this kind of like deterministic thing, that there's these good things that God basically set in place for us to do, and as we live out our lives as believers, they're just going to happen. 
I really have a problem the more I read the Bible with any kind of idea that things just happen because they happen. We're here because we're here because we're here because we're here. That's not biblical. We are called to hear God. We are called to obey God and to do what he has called us to do. And we have been freed by the blood of Jesus to to be those kinds of people. And so to say that God prepared these things beforehand for us to do is simply to say that as we act out his will in life, as we live godly lives, as we do good things, we are acting out the fulfillment of God's plans and purposes which he established before the creation of the world. Those who disobey God, be they believers or non-believers, are going against God and going against his plan. They're they're further um, contributing to the brokenness of the world that we live in. And that's the majority But we're the ones who are called to bring repair, to bring restoration, to bring healing in a world that by and large doesn't want it. They want to preserve the brokenness and we have have the antidote. And despite the fact that there are forces resisting the healing goodness of God, there are still many, many people that if only they would be offered it, we'd be so glad to receive it, no matter what the media is trying to tell us. So we've been created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. There is a path of goodness for us to walk in, but we need to walk. We need to walk in them which also means not walking in the bad stuff. We have to stop walking in the muck and mire of sin and walk in the goodness of God. But he doesn't force us. I know we often wish he would, especially with those people, but even for ourselves, we wish he would force us. Why doesn't he stop me? Why doesn't he stop me from saying those things? It doesn't work like that. When we see the brokenness that we still have in our lives, we need to take it seriously. We need to confess it before God. We need to look to him for his mercy, not by climbing a bunch of stairs on our knees in hopes that somehow by us doing that, God will grant us what we want. And while many of us have never actually literally done that, Many of us, that's how we do our spirituality. If only I tried harder. No, humble yourselves more. Be more honest and ask God to to do the work in us so we could get up and go and do the things that he's calling us to do. But that applies to the people who, who have been remade by him. And so I need to ask, are you his poem? God wants to make you his masterpiece. And all you need to do is ask, confessing your sin to him, asking him to take over. The grace of God is freely available 
You don't have to climb a ladder to get it. But not only do we need to receive it, then we need to continue from there and do that which God is calling us to do. Let us be firmly in the vine and bear fruit in keeping with who God really is. Let's pray. Our God, again, we thank you. We thank you that you are a God of grace and that your heart is wide open to your people. Your heart is wide open to everyone. That you are ready to receive us. And for those of us who have turned from you, you are ready to receive us again and again and again. Father, help us as individuals, as families, as a congregation to hear what you're saying to us and respond with faith to you, trusting in you and what your son has done, that we would be free to walk in your goodness. Father, forgive us for waiting for this something to happen for waiting for you to do what you have told us to do. But thank you that just like you said to the, the, the lame man, pick up your mat and walk. You're saying to us, get up and walk because as we do so, you have given us the power to do so, even though we feel so powerless. Help us, Lord, to trust you. Forgive us for the ways that we have failed to do so. Thank you that you do. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For additional messages and more information, please visit us on the web at allsaintslutheran.ca.